Well, let's pray to our Lord, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed we thank you. We thank you that your Son came, the promised one, to the Jew and to the Greek, and for all who believe. You promise there is no condemnation. And so, Father, we thank you. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, the sovereign hand that leads. And we heard that in these testimonies. We've sung about it. And now we're vividly going to see it displayed here in the text. So guide us as we go to this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to First Chronicles, not Samuel, First Chronicles chapter 21. If you've joined us more recent, we've been walking through the life of David. We have two more sessions with him after this week, but uh, I thought it would be fitting. It, it, you know, you, you see this great man of the faith, and we've seen also his warts the last two weeks. We saw his sin with Bathsheba. They try to cover it up. He commits murder. And then the consequences of the sin that occurred there in 2 Samuel 12. And we looked at the warning signs that come with sin and temptation. We looked at the marks of genuine repentance. And as I was looking at this sermon series, I, I thought, you know, it's important that we also see in the undertow God's sovereignty. And I think it's easily or seen, but far better, I think, in looking at a specific text, and that's 1 Chronicles 21, where we have another sin that David has committed. Uh, aren't you glad you're not David? Because the scriptures, I mean, they've recorded it all, right? What a bummer. Uh, for all of us to glean from, to learn from, to put some parameters up, etc., but in this process of looking at temptation and sin and the consequences, I think it's also very helpful to see, no, God's sovereign hand is guiding through this. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 here of chapter 21 in the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles. An adversary, now I'm reading from the Net Bible, if you have any other English version, most of them will translate this as Satan, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Satan, or an adversary, opposed Israel, inciting David to count how many warriors Israel had. David told Joab, remember him? Yes, Joab was willingly accomplice in the murder of Uriah. It says that he served as commander of the armies, the leaders of the army, and David tells him, go count the number of warriors from Beersheba, southern Israel, to Dan, northern Israel, all of the, the land, the territory. Then bring back a report to me so I may know how many we have. Seems reasonable enough. I need to know how many soldiers we have. Joab replies, may the Lord make his army a hundred times larger. My master, O king, do not all of them serve my master? Why does my master want to do this? Why bring judgment on Israel? Joab saying, uh-uh, you don't want to do this. But the king's edict stood despite Joab's objections. So Joab left and traveled throughout Israel. This would have taken months before returning to Jerusalem. Joab reported to David the number of warriors. And he gives us report. We've got one over a hundred or over a million sword 
bearing soldiers in Judah alone has 470. Now look at verse 6. Now Joab did not number the tribe of Levi nor the tribe of Benjamin for the king's edict disgusted him and God was also offended by it. So he attacked Israel. So we get this scene here. This is sin, several sins from the life of David we see, but in this passage, David is going to say, I have sinned. It's the same thing he, he did when he was confronted uh, with his sin with Bathsheba. But let's jump up to verse 21, because there are, verse 1, there are a lot of questions surrounding this text, uh, because the parallel scene, this event is also recorded in 2 Samuel 24. I purposely selected uh, this scene in, in, in chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles because of what the writer records at the end of this. But in 2 Samuel, we're told that it is God who incites David. What does our text tell us here? An adversary or Satan. And so scholars go, oh, we have an error here. Let me read 2 Samuel 24, 1. It says that the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel and he incited David against Israel. We don't know what Israel has done, but according to 2 Samuel and reading between the lines in 1 Chronicles, Israel has sinned. Now, Samuel tells us that the Lord's anger has burned. So just bear with me for a minute. What this means, it's used several times in the Old Testament. It always refers to idolatry. So we're assuming that what happens is Israel has turned their back on God. God is angry, and now he's going to incite David to do the senses. It's going to be like sin upon sin. Now, you say, well, we still got a problem here because the text tells us it's Satan or an adversary. The reason the Net Bible has gone with adversary, it's a little unclear if it is the Satan. There's only two references to Satan in the Old Testament, and both of those occur with an article in the Hebrew, and we'll leave it at that. I tend to think that it is Satan himself who's opposing Israel. The Lord can and has used Satan to complete his goal. I would argue it's both and. Overarching, God is in control. And he is allowing Satan to go in and take out David, or at least to do this, to discipline the Israelites. You say, well, what other passages of Scripture do you have support for this, David? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us a time is coming when God will delude sinful people so they will believe Satan's lies. So Satan's a tool there in 2 Thessalonians. Acts 2 this Jesus delivered up according to the de definitive plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the Lord will accomplish his will, his plan, and all of his creation will do his bidding, including Satan. And the, what's the primary purpose? What do we see in the text in 2 Samuel? Don't miss this. In 1 Chronicles 21, God is pulling out a paddle and he is spanking Israel. We don't know specifically why, but we know they've blown it. And keep that in mind as we go through here. No one is innocent in this chapter. All right? So keep that in the forefront. David will fulfill the plan. Chisholm in his commentary writes, Sin can ignite a chain reaction. So Israel sins that causes more sin and prompts more intense punishment until the sinner is destroyed. 
We've already seen the gravity of sin last week, well, last two weeks actually. We've seen the effects of it and in the culture we live in and I think even in the American church we, we often talk about the concepts of, of sin that we, we grow numb to it. I know a couple of people this week told me it, this has been a good study because it's, 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 it's re, um, reinvigorated, it's not the right word, but I'm now looking at this with fresh lens again on how serious my sin is. Well, then praise the Lord if that's what's accomplished in our study of this text. Because that's what the writer wants you to see. <laughs> it's one of the things. And so David takes a census. David's still at fault. But God has incited him to do it via Satan. And David has taken an account, head count of his warriors. Now, this was permissible in Scripture. There's nothing wrong with taking a census. However, we know what Joab says, you've blown it, and later God will be very angry with David for doing it. So why? What's happening here? This is another discussion. Let me give you a few theories that scholars propose. One is that the tribes felt threatened in their independence. This is kind of like the, the Confederacy, right? You know, they still have their rights as a tribe, and David is crossing the line. That might be true to some extent, but that doesn't explain Joab's response. This is ticking off the Lord, not the other tribes. So that, another view is that David failed to recognize that the census was ultimately the Lord's prerogative. The text is Exodus 30. If you're writing, taking notes, you want to write this down. Exodus 30, verse 12. Listen to what the text says. When you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. When you number them, that there will be no plague, and that's where we're headed here in this text, among them when you number them. In other words, there was a ransom to be paid by those whose head was counted. It's kind of like you've been called up to active duty. You know, you got to get... I don't know, vaccinate, do whatever you need to do in order to be part of the military, right? There's things that you have to do in order to be a process. A military census activated the warriors who were counted and made them subject to certain purity laws. One scholar writes, David creates a situation which is inevitable that such laws will be violated somewhere by someone and that prompts the wrath of God. I think there's a lot of truth to this. There's two more theories, and I, I don't think it's, it's an either or. One theory is that the census was a failure to trust the Lord and his promises. I mean, we're going to look at the objections of Joab. That's what he says. Why, why are you counting? God, God will provide. Why are you doing this? And then another view is that the census was ultimately an expression of David's pride. Look at me. I'm king. Look who I have. Again, I think there's a bit of a hybrid. I think you're violating Exodus 30 for sure. Also, there's a failure on the part of David to look to the Lord. Joab objects. He objects really on three grounds. One, he says, doing a census is out of date <laughs> already because God will provide the army you need more than what you need. Secondly, he, it serves no useful purpose, David. They're already your slaves. They'll do whatever you need. So why do you need a head count? And third, I mean, look what Job says. Why bring, verse 3, judgment on Israel? 
Now, I want you to see the weakness of David. First of all, we're in the latter years of David. It's not long he's going to be pushing up daisies. He's, he's past his prime. Success in the spiritual life and age, uh, <laughs> and in age does not exempt you from sin. If you're 90, you have not made it yet. One of my former colleagues said, what scares me most in my Christian walk is my latter years. That's what scares me most. Hmm. I said, what do you mean by that? I mean, I figured by the latter years, you got the spiritual life down. You've written books. You've got this made. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> he said, no, because that's when arrogance seeks in or I think I'm, I just kind of coast. I get rigid critical of everything. He says, I'm seeing it all in my life and it scares me spitless. David should have known better. It's a, it, David is not finishing well by taking the senses. Remember what he told Goliath? He said, the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel's armies will deliver you to me. David should not have been counting his earthly armies. He should have been counting the heavenly armies. Just trust the Lord, David. You've, you've seen his hand time and time again. Chuck Swindoll, in writing about this, said, no such thing as outgrowing sin. Hmm. So first of all, we need to heed the warning. Success in the spiritual life and growing old doesn't mean you've made it. Secondly, David was out of touch with the Lord, wasn't he? Even Joab, who's a bit of a louse. <laughs> Joab says to David, don't do this. It's pretty bad when you have the world warning the church on what they should or should not do. But sadly, throughout church history, it's happened. Take heed. David failed to take God seriously. And finally, did you catch this? There are no checks or balances in the life of David. Notice what the text says in verse 4. The king's edict stood. If you have a leader who does not allow his or her authority to be questioned, you better run like the wind. If you have a leader who refuses to admit wrong or is unwilling to say, I'm sorry, you better run like the wind. David is in a very dangerous place. Just think about the tragedy David would have prevented if he had just listened to Joab. Joab tells him, hey, this isn't right. Nana, 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 I'm not listening. Like a two-year-old. Grow up, David. <laughs> Wait, you are old. I mean, behave like your age, right? And this leads us to the first point I want to make on the sovereignty of God as I look at this text. The sovereignty of God can use, but will judge, sin for his glory. Think of Genesis 50, that infamous text. Remember that text or famous text? Not infamous, but famous. Joseph, his brothers now realize that the, the brother they had sold into slavery, is stand, they're standing before him. Joseph, the second most powerful man in the world. <laughs> the brother's like, this is, we're toast. 
And Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil, watch this, against me, but God meant it for good. Wow. God took the sin because he's sovereign. He's still working out his plan. I love the verse that we just sang, is he, is he worthy? The lion of Judah, the, this one of David, God's promise, David isn't going to thwart it. God is still in charge. And that should, that should, as a follower of Jesus, you should be jumping up and down. Yay, that is a God we serve. He keeps his word, he keeps his promise, and nothing's going to thwart it, and he can even use the crud in this world for his glory. Margaret Clarkson, author, hymn writer, now with the Lord, she wrote a book called Grace Grows Best in Winter. Great title. She writes, The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. Even the adversary, God's still in charge. All evil is subject to him, and evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. Wow. And you heard that in four testimonies just a minute ago. Our God, the sovereign God, can use and will judge still, but can use sin for his glory. Now let's get back to the text, verse 8. Here's where it gets juicy. Right? David says to God, I have sinned. Well, glad you figured that one out. This is the second time he's told us this in the text. We see this in the sin with Bathsheba. And remember, there's only two other people who state this in all of the Old Testament. <laughs> One is Saul, his predecessor, and the second is Achan. And we know what happened to Saul, and we know what happened to Achan. Notice what else David says. I have sinned greatly by doing this. Please remove the guilt of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. I'm an idiot. That word was used of Samuel when he confronts Saul and he goes, you're a fool, Saul, for doing this. And here you see David saying, I'm just like it. I should not have done this. But here's where it gets shocking. And this is what you want to see here as you look at this text. The Lord told Gad, this is another prophet of David's. We had Nathan, we saw before, now we have Gad. Go tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm offering you three forms of judgment. Like, Let's make a deal. But none of the doors are great, right? They're all bad. So look what happens here. In fact, this is the only place in Scripture where God gives, I think in Scripture, where God gives a human a choice on the punishment. So here's three options for you, dear David. It says, pick one of them. Gad says to David, this is what the Lord says. Pick one of these. Three years of famine, three years of being chased by your enemies and struck down by their swords, or three days being struck down by the Lord, during which is a plague will invade the land and the angel of the Lord will destroy throughout Israel's territory. Now decide what I should tell the one who sent me. Hmm. And, the out, and it's ticking, right? You have 30 seconds. David said to Gad, I'm very upset. I prefer to be attacked by the Lord for his mercy. Watch this, is very great. 
I do not want, he knows that. Just ask him about Bathsheba and Uriah. I do not want to be attacked by men. So the, I would rather have the Lord's sword than the men of the world's sword. Why? Because this one, the Lord, knows about mercy. The world does not. So the Lord sent a plague through Israel and 70,000 Israelites were killed. You were concerned about a census. You're not going to have to take another one. You just lost a few. And it says that God sent an angel here in the text to ravage Jerusalem. And as he was doing so, the Lord watched and he relented from his judgment. He told the angel who was destroying, that's enough. Stop. No. Interesting in the text here, especially for Chronicles, First uh, and Second Samuel spare no punches, especially Second Samuel, in painting a very realistic picture of David. But when you get to Chronicles, David, well, one scholar says he's the impeccable superhero who does little wrong and triumphs greatly. And so it's it's even all the more shocking in First Chronicles to read, oh, he has a wart. <laughs> what? That's David. Because in Chronicles, you will read nothing about Amnon's rape of his half-sister, or Absalom's revenge, or Absalom's rebellion, or Absalom's death, or the, the great drought of famine. None of that's recorded in First Chronicles. Why? Because Chronicles is trying to take us to the glory of the temple and all that is going to transpire. And that's why this story has to be recorded. It's vital to the storyline. It's vital that we see this. And we'll get to that in a minute. But here you see these three options. One is for three years, three months, or three days. And David goes for the three days. Again, why? Because I think he understands of all of those, I know the Lord's mercy is great, and I'm going to bank on that one. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. And so what does verse 14 tell us? The Lord says, fine. So he sends the angel of the Lord, who's referred to as the destroyer. That's the same one who went through Egypt and took out all the firstborn. You don't want to tick him off. <laughs> and so the Lord sends him out and an infectious disease, plague breaks out and it takes out 70,000. There are three important truths as I look at this text and you see this here. First of all, we need to step back for a minute. We need to be careful if there's a pandemic or you lose your first child like David did with Bathsheba. It doesn't necessarily mean this is a consequence of sin. We don't want to fall into the trap the disciples did when they had that man who was blind in John 9. And they said, who has sinned, his parents or this man? And what does the Lord say? Neither. Neither one is sinned. It's so that God can be glorified. So we want to be careful equating tragedy with sin. But in this case, this pandemic is directly related to the sin, not only of David. Remember, who's God ultimately ticked at? All of Israel, not just David. And so that, that's vital here. And second thing that we see is sin carries a very expensive price tag. Again, growing up in the church... We've heard it so long that we can grow numb to the fact. You, uh, 
I don't know, some of you who have roses, you might use seven. It's a bug spray, right? And you, you read the warning label. The first time I used it, I felt like I needed to get a hazmat suit on. And I washed for 20 minutes after I'd used it, thinking I was going to die. You know, now when I use it, I, I'm not even sure as I eat my chicken wings whether I wash my hands, you know. So you, you grow to the point where, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, I drink from the bottle. We rationalize sin. We can dismiss sin. It, it, in fact, we'll feed it from time to time. Give it a test drive. We can ask for forgiveness, you know, prior to sinning. Well, excuse my French, but... Mm. Several years ago, I wrote this little recipe. I entitled it A Little Pinch of Sin, A Pleasing Recipe. Just bear with me. Move over a... Julia Childs, we now have a new recipe for the church. This new concoction will assist any evangelical church to be relevant in a postmodern world. The recipe still calls for several common ingredients such as prayer, the Bible, community, often referred to in lieu of the church. Do note that the uh, amount of Bible has been lessened. This recipe, however, does eliminate doctrine. that This will prevent the dryness often associated with the old fundamentalist recipes. In addition, the new recipe contains an exciting new ingredient. This key component, which will make the dish all the more palatable, is a small dose of sin. A little cussing, an embracement of alternative lifestyles, even a few tipsy evenings will assist your church in communicating to the world. In fact, the more your recipe resembles the world, the more desirable it will be. The new recipe can be found in several popular evangelical writings today. Oh, and be sure to disregard the warning label, which reads, whatsoever is true, what is ever noble, whatsoever is right, whatsoever is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I know, it was a little tongue-in-cheek. I probably wasn't in a good mood, had a lot of pizza the night that I wrote that. But the point is there, is it not? It's so easy, like handling seven, that we forget the warning labels. And that's where David is. Third thing that I see here in the text is God hates sin and he's perfectly justified in punishing sinners in whatever way he deems appropriate. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I can still remember a student saying in the middle of a class, I cannot accept a God who says he's loving and sovereign and allow something like this to happen where 70,000 people are killed. Are you God? If, in fact, I would argue it's because of God's patience, it is because of God's grace that we don't see a whole lot of oozes and Ananiases and Sapphires in Scripture. <laughs> there are only a few incidences, but they are there for us to sit up and take nourishment. And also a reminder, this God is the same God who took out the 70,000 that we sing about on a Sunday morning or who we pray to during the week. David should have listened to Joab. He should have been in tune with the things of the Lord, and he was not. And God takes out the paddle and spanks. And you say, wow, 70,000. Well, lest we question sin and divine anger and judgment, then let me take you to the cross with the outpouring of God's wrath on his very son. 
The question in verse 27 should be concerning is not how can God do such things, but how can God stop where he does knowing what they deserve and knowing what we deserve? That's the question. And that leads us to a second point about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God acts according to his will in order to carry out his perfect plan. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. We must remember that divine Sovereignty does not diminish human responsibility. Neither does human responsibility diminish divine sovereignty. There is a tension. There is a mystery here. And theologians on either sides of the camp have tried to explain the, the relationship between the two. But we must remember that the Lord is in charge. And he chooses whom he wants. Ask Ishmael versus Isaac. Esau versus Jacob. Ephraim versus Manasseh. David and his other siblings that weren't called. Sin cannot dethrone God. Here's the great news. Maybe you're a product or a, one that has experienced sin that has affected you. The, the consequences of their sin has spilled over into your own life. You've got scars, emotional scars, perhaps physical scars. Here's the good news. Sin cannot dethrone God. That is what sin aims to do, but it misses the mark. Sin brings guilt to a man or woman, but it does not bring him or her one ounce of sovereignty. God rules, even when men and women imagine they are defying him, writes Tom Wells, and he is so right. God's in charge. I don't need to tell you that. We heard the testimonies. Sometimes it's in sin that we see God still maneuvering. Sometimes sin doesn't have to even be related and we see God moving. I remember first year at seminary, I took the Greek test and I had taken two years of Greek in undergrad. I got the A that you needed. And what all I was doing was memorizing. I really didn't learn it. I took this entrance test, advanced standing test, and I failed. <laughs> it was devastating. I thought my whole world had come crumbling down I didn't like this language anyways. <laughs> Little did I know, the Lord said, no, you're going to be teaching Greek down the road, and I need you to come to love it. And so I need to put you with a professor who can teach you how to really learn the language. That's what God was doing. Perhaps we've got some young people here as you look to college, or you're, you're looking at where God has, and the carpet seems to be ripped out from underneath your feet. We serve a sovereign God. He knows. We need to be reminded of God's sovereignty that his plan is perfect. And whether through your, our own sin, the sin of others, or again, just difficult circumstances in life, we need, I'm reminded of Corey Tim Boom's words, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And we see that. Let's look at the text. Let's see what happens starting in verse 15 here. God sends an angel to ravage Jerusalem, as we saw. The Lord stops it. Now the angel of the Lord was standing near the threshold or the fleshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and the sky. 
David falls down and says, hey, isn't I the one who, who had brought this upon the people? Am I not the one who sinned, look at this, and committed this awful deed? As for this sheep, what have they done? Referring to Israel, oh Lord, my God, attack me and watch this next line and my family. David knows exactly what he's saying. He's already buried an infant. So the angel of the Lord told Gad to instruct David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up as Gad instructed him to do this in the name of the Lord. And in this scene, Ornan is wanting to, to just give David the property. I mean, after all, he is king of Israel. And David says, no, 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 you'll sell me the threshing floor and I will pay you top price. And then in verse 24, King David replied, no, I insist on buying it for top price. It's repeated. I will not offer to the Lord what belongs to you or offer a burnt sacrifice that costs me nothing. David remembers the parable that Nathan had shared. Don't take someone else's bobo. This has got to cost me something. And so David bought the place from Ornan for 600 pieces of gold. David built there an altar. He called out to the Lord. The Lord sends a fire, consumes it, tells the messenger, his angel, to put back the sword. At that time, when David saw that the Lord responded to the threshing floor, he sacrificed there. And the last sentence states, this is the place. This is verse 1 of chapter 22. This is the place where the temple of the Lord God will be. Wow. Let's back up. Let's look at this. Talking about the sovereignty of God and what he's doing. You see these sequence of events. The Lord relents. David repents. And then the Lord restores. And the sovereignty of God, a third point here, even allows a tragedy to serve as a reminder of God's grace. The sovereignty of God even allows the tragedies of life to remind us of his grace. Humans, when they're angry, annihilate. Scorched earth policy, right? <sighs> Not the Lord. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man, woman, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. If you know Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Because as Exodus 34 states, our Lord is merciful and gracious. You see this scene where David is, he, he, he has to purchase this property. It's where the angel of the Lord stops with the sword in hand. And David says, I need to offer sacrifice there. And then we, we, we've talked about this. It needs to cost David something, and it does. He says it pays us 600 shekels, which is 240 ounces of gold. If gold is at $1,955 an ounce, you're talking $469,000 plus. A threshing floor is about 50 to 100 feet in diameter. In other words, it's less than a quarter of an acre. That's one expensive parcel of land. It stops the plague. And you have the burnt offerings and the peace offerings that David offers. And I wish we had more time, but I want you to see something here. The place where David sacrifices the land that he buys later in Second Chronicles, it's called Moriah. Who else 
was at Moriah. Abraham, when he bound Isaac and was going to offer up a sacrifice, this is holy ground. And in verse 26, we see the fire consuming David's sacrifice. It's the same thing that happens when Solomon builds the temple and dedication day, fire consumes the sacrifice. Not sure I want that to happen on day one for us, but it happened here, right? Fire coming down. Woo! Solomon will build the temple at the place where burnt offerings would be offered for the ongoing sins of, for Israel. In other words, the temple stood at the actual place where David's sin had brought Jerusalem to the brink of destruction. Do you catch this? That should make your socks roll up and down. I mean, that's, that's exciting. I mean, there's a hearty amen because God's sovereignty is working. Even in the midst of the crud where David offers this sacrifice, buys this threshing floor, it becomes the basis of the temple that Solomon will build. That's God's sovereignty, grace, and mercy. And that leads us to the fourth point on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God reminds us that all good things come from him. David wished to die for the Israelites to stop the plague. Irony, he couldn't do it. But there was a day when his offspring came and just close to that threshing floor on the Mount of Calvary, his son will die and will atone for the sins of all humanity. That's Jesus Christ. God in his sovereignty reminds us that all things good come from him. There's no boasting. You can say, look what I, David can't say that. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't in your foresight to buy that parcel of land. You were told to do it. And the reason you had to do it, because you had to atone for your own sin. And yet God used that for his glory. Immediately following Solomon's concluding words at the temple dedication ceremony, the Lord sent down fire, as I mentioned, and the text tells us his splendor, his glory, his kabod, his awesomeness comes down and dwells in that temple. And Israel goes to their knees with their faces towards the pavement. They worship, the text tells us, and then they state, surely or certainly our God is good. Certainly his loyal love endures. As we've been journeying through some of the crud of David, the pages that biographers don't sometimes highlight. <laughs> we've seen a man who has yielded to sin. We've seen the consequences of his sin. And yet, I want you to see in all of this, we have a sovereign God who is gracious. He is merciful. What a comfort, isn't it? To those of us who know Jesus, we serve a sovereign Lord. And it allows us to state with assurance, Jesus has paid it all. And that when before the throne I stand, I will be complete. Father, you are an awesome God. A God who does not need to show mercy, but you've identified yourself as such. And you've acted accordingly. You're a God who identified yourself as a gracious God, a loving God, 
a merciful God. And time and time again in the pages of your word, we read it and we see it. David should have been taken out when he committed the sin with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. He should have been taken out when he took the census. But you continued to show grace. The covenant that you made with David, you didn't throw into the wind, but you used all of this to show us as humanity that salvation comes solely from you. Even the promises made to David needed to be fulfilled in a sinless human being who was also God. And that was your son, Jesus. And it's through him we can have a relationship with you. And it's through him that we can have no condemnation. Father, you are a sovereign God. It's not a license then just to sin or to do what we want. It's one that should cause us to bend our knees, to understand the ramifications of sin, but also to relish in your forgiveness and an understanding that, Lord, in it all, you are still working and you are allowing us to be called your children. And David is still called a man after your own heart. And that only comes because you are a gracious and merciful God who is sovereign and who has the ability to forgive, who has the ability to carry out your plan, and nothing will thwart it. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name.